everybody. Welcome back to The Product Pod, the podcast that explores products from every possible angle. I'm Arit Zatouni. And I'm Ram Almong. Hi, Arit. Hey, Ram. Today, we're going to listen to the second part of the talk we had with Marty Kagan. And for those of you who didn't listen to the first part and you still don't know who he is, Marty wrote two of the most important publications that exist today for people who work in product. Those two books are called Inspired and Empowered. So you can just Google it or link to it from our show notes. Yeah. So here's part two. Enjoy. Give us an idea of what that product strategy would look like, because it's not just like um, we want more users or, you know what I mean? Can you give us an example more so that we understand what kind of that brief would look like? Sure. And actually, I've got a fun example that I could share that just recently became public, but it was one of the most amazing product strategies in history from the most secretive company in our industry, which most of you probably know is Apple. Um, so anyway, and I and I do like on the in the book Empowered, there's a whole case study with a product strategy. There's there's 100 pages on product strategy. You can read all about it. And on the SVPG.com website, there's examples of product strategy. Um, but the one I was referring to is you guys probably at least saw the lawsuit between Epic the makers of Fortnite and uh, Apple. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't think Epic had a chance, unfortunately, based on the, the, the laws in the U.S. at least. But, um, but it was fascinating because they, they have something in the legal world called discovery where a lot of the emails became public, including the original email from the VP at Apple that proposed the strategy which became the App Store. And of course, I don't know how many of you remember, the first iPhone did not have an app store. And by the way, Steve Jobs resisted the idea. He had to be persuaded to open up the, uh, the iPhone to allow third-party apps. Um, and, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Anyway, Bertrand Servlet was the executive at Apple, and he, proposed, he, he knew this was going to happen one way or another because people were already basically hacking the phones so that they could install their own app. So he knew Apple wanted to be on top of this. So he proposed a product strategy and a vision to Steve Jobs in an email. And Steve Jobs gave like an hour later a one-line answer, do it, just get it ready for the next developer conference. So anyway, you can read this uh, email. It is one of the most concise and excellent descriptions of a product strategy I've ever seen. He said, look, we need to do this, but we need to do it right. And that means doing four things. And he basically spelled out, we have four problems we have to solve. It's gonna be hard. Nobody's actually solved those problems before. And actually the iPhone and their ecosystem is still the only ones that do. If you know on Android, it's a completely different model and uh, with a very different vision. So you can read that. There are literally four problems to solve. One of them was make it safe for the user. Anything they download from Apple, they need to not have to worry is going to like steal all their information. Uh, Another one was we need to provide developers with a real solution because it's hard to develop an iPhone app. We need to, you know, it's going to be a Mac-based cross-development solution. That was a problem that needed to be solved. They also had a very hard problem was we need to decide public APIs. Right now, it's just Apple only, so we don't worry about that. But we're going to have to define a set of public APIs that abstract the details of the hardware. 
which, by the way, is a very hard problem. And uh, they did remarkably well. Um, and uh, anyway, this is an, a product strategy. His argument is if our vision is this is what we're going to do, we need a product strategy that makes that happen. You can read the original product strategy. So the first thing that Apple did well is they had leaders that understood product strategy, and they still have many of my favorite product leaders in the world or executives at Apple. And then the second thing they did well is they had teams that were capable of solving these problems, right? Very strong engineers, very strong designers. That's always been the core DNA of Apple. And they gave them these problems and they figured them out. And, and they didn't have the um, they didn't have a roadmap. I mean, how does that work? You know, like what about really like shipping and time to market and all that stuff? I mean, not everyone's Apple too, you know. So it's like they feel like they need to get out there and how do you deal with that? You know, like well, there's there's a number of problems there or that you're mixing in. So the first one is you're right, Apple has a very complicated ecosystem. So they need to coordinate to execute. In fact, they're probably the best company at the world at cross-platform. I think they've got eight platforms now, coordination. Uh now, so that doesn't go away. Execution doesn't go away. They have a very strong competency at Apple on program management, on, on uh, execution. And so does Google and so does Amazon. A lot of these complex systems need this and, and they have to have this. So um, the, the roadmaps themselves are actually not a problem as long as you create those after you've done discovery to figure out a solution worth building. Companies get in trouble because they do it instead of product discovery. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. But as long as you've done the discovery, that's actually called a high integrity commitment. We know what we're promising. You, it's absolutely not an issue. And you have to do it on a company that's even a fraction of the size of Apple. So how do you commit on, on the output of a discovery phase? So you say, when will you solve this? No, that's so remember let's that's a good question. Let's let's talk about it because it helps us drill double click in on what discovery really is. Discovery is about answering four questions, addressing four risks. Will this do, our job, of course, is to come up with a solution, but there are four risks with that solution. The most important one is will customers buy it or choose to use it? That's value risk. The second risk is assuming they want to use this, can they figure it out? That's usability risk. The third risk is what Ron was getting at. Can we build it? Do we, have the, do we know how to code it? Literally, do we have the algorithms? Do we have the technology stack in place? And how about this? Do we have people on the team with the skills to know how to use that technology to do it? That's all feasibility. And the fourth is viability. Just because our customers love it doesn't mean it's legal, doesn't mean that we can cost-effectively market it sell it, support it. It doesn't mean it's compliant. So these are viability risks. Those are what we're trying to answer in discovery. As soon as we have reasonable confidence on those four things, we build the damn thing. But until then, we prototype and test against these four risks. And what we're saying, and this is what a high integrity commitment is, it's not actually that complicated. What we're trying to do is... Uh, um, once we feel like we have reasonable confidence on those four risks, we can answer that question, which is what will we ship? When will we ship it? 
We can answer that with high confidence. And that's a high integrity commitment. Now, sometimes that only takes a day or two to answer for most things. For a big thing, it might take a week or two. For a machine learning project, it might take a quarter or two. <laughs> but those are, you know, those are more exceptions. For most things, it's more like a few days. And then we have those, we have the data we need to make a high integrity commitment. Uh, so we we heard about uh, some interesting uh, examples. Uh, Marty, do you have uh, a product team? Do you know about a product team that uh, is doing outstanding work, work at the moment? Let's say doing products that you admire. And well, there's do they many write? of them. Many of them. Uh, Could you point out <laughs> some? <laughs> Maybe one or two. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just depends on where in the world we want to talk about. I'd say one of the most impressive companies in the world right now is Stripe. Um, I don't know how many of you know Stripe. I, it's funny because historically in our industry, the worst companies in the world are banks. Well, really banks and telcos. Banks and telcos have been awful at product forever, but you know, they're kind of oligopolies. So You know, you've heard the too big to fail and all that stuff. And they so anyway, they get away with treating their customers terribly, you know, very low service. We know this. And a remarkable thing has happened over the last six months. Three different CEOs from three of the biggest banks in the world somehow found my, my name and reached out to me, which, of course, they would normally never know who I was or care who I was, but they reached out and said, uh, okay, we believe we have to take products seriously now. And I said, why? In all cases, they said, in all cases, Stripe. <laughs> Stripe is putting the fear of God into these banks and many financial services companies because Stripe is truly disrupting the space. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great thing, by the way. First of all, I, I love Stripe. I think they're doing so many things well, but I also think for, for those of us in the world, almost all of us have, we're customers of banks and we will benefit from this. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, what is it about Stripe? I mean, Stripe, They're a great example of really, first of all, they're a great example of empowered teams. One of the things I think is impressive is they have two very strong product-oriented founders, two brothers, actually, Irish brothers. And they, um, uh, they 10 years ago, planned their 10-year vision, and they have just been executing on that vision. And I love that they, they were very intentional about their culture. When you look at Stripe, there's things they do. You can see the signs like they get, they're like Apple, they believe in long-term vision. Like Apple, they believe in the power of design. Even though Stripe is a platform company, you can still see how design shines through mm. and the belief in that. And then they look at, they, you can see how they've really, taken a lot from Google in terms of especially their, their discovery skills. They know that's the core competency and also their scale skills, their ability to scale. And then from Amazon, they've very intentionally taken the best of Amazon too. Amazon, they do two things that many th people think are, um, are in conflict, but they're not. One is they are very fast. 
they move fast. I mean, honestly, way faster than, than, than Google moves and way faster than Apple moves. Amazon moves fast. But interestingly, they also are very thoughtful. In fact, they've designed in deep thinking into their process. One of my favorite techniques is the written narrative, the six-pager, which is something they've really embraced. Uh, and anyway, so they do both. And one of the things they understand is to move fast, you need to think deeply. So, I mean, those are three great companies, full stop, three great companies. Stripe took the best of all three, and they said, this is going to be us. And it's just been remarkable to watch them execute worldwide. But the nice thing is that's one of many. That's one of many. In, in Sweden, I've been so impressed by Spotify. You know, Spotify is competing against both Amazon that you just heard me rave about and Apple that you've heard me rave about. Two of the best companies in the world, and they've been holding their own. If you ask me the biggest single reason why, empowered engineers. That has always been at the core of, it's, it's part of Swedish culture, but it's always been at the core of uh of Spotify. Shopify is a Canadian company. It's doing amazingly well. Slack. Slack was just purchased by Salesforce, so we'll have to see if they change it or not. But so far, they've been doing amazing. Uh, and, you know, we've just got lots of, there are many examples all around the world today, and that's what I love. It is true that the majority of companies in the world are not like Stripe, but that's why we're on this call. Hopefully we'll get a few more to join the ranks. I wonder, like you're talking about like big scale-ups and you worked in those big enterprises, became to be enterprises. And now you have your like a small team you know, of consultants. You're not scaling up. How, how does that personally feel? Like you've been, it's been a while since you, so how does that feel like in the partnership and the small thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, and we, we, we don't like to think of ourselves as consultants because, uh, but technically we are because we're all, all of us have been operators for most of our career. And so that's what we like to do. And so we, and the way I work is, is I'm paid with equity. So if the company doesn't do well, I don't do well. Um, uh, I'm an advisor to a lot of companies. I actually love that because I feel like I genuinely am a member of their teams a member of the companies. And I love it because I, I've reached a point in my career where I get bored with any one company. So I like to have many companies that I, you know, get to work with. So, yeah, but I, I'm, uh, yeah, the, the sort of classic management consultancy, we have no, in I have no interest in that. Yeah. And um, do you prefer working with like, little startups or with like scale-ups or with corporates, like where do you find yourself like really yeah, making an impact? No. And do, well, startups need, do startups need it even, you know, because they're oh, working so, you know. No, startups, look, the, the failure rate of startups is terrible. That is no secret. And startups are all about product discovery. If they don't get the product market fit, they're out of money and then they're done. So uh, that is, I love working with startups. I have also over the last 10 years or so, spend about half my time now with those that are scaling, scale-ups or growth stage companies. You know, there's some very hard problems there. I think I've been, been focusing more on that because that's where the leadership really starts to make a difference in a big way. 
I don't spend much time with the big corporate enterprise companies, but my partners do because um, I have uh, I selected my partners because they have led each of them have led those kinds of big companies through the transformation from not very good to awesome. And so that's a whole skill set that that I don't have. I'm lucky I worked in empowered companies from the beginning, but many people haven't. And so to transform one of those companies from the old style to the new style is is hard. And that's what they focus on. Okay. And um, I'd just like to get, if anyone has a few questions, we just have a few more minutes with you. So um, does, ever, does, does anyone have any questions that they want to post in the chat? Yeah, and I want to take the chance to, to <laughs> tell you, Marty, because I asked uh, what kind of roles people have in the audience. And I just, uh, yeah, we have a lot of answers. So it's from product manager. We have a lot of product managers, uh, product specialist, senior direct data product, uh, product consultant, executive product consultant, senior product managers, product ops product manager, director, pro a lot of product managers. So just to let you know, and we have also some uh, UX designers, some designers, but a lot of, yeah, product managers. <laughs> Not I mean, what engineers. I, yeah, I was asking for the engineers if we have empowered engineers, but uh, not many answers. <laughs> I was, one of the reasons I was curious about that was just that in, uh, you know, we have a real problem in parts of the world about people that are thinking their job is a product owner job. And so that's what I was really looking for. If somebody is product owner, that is uh, that is not really irrelevant. It's, that's a role that the product manager plays, but it's a small percentage of the role. So. Okay, we've got now we've got the questions coming. Wait, oh, it's too fast. <laughs> um, I think someone wrote before, like earlier, they said, like, how many different solutions in the discovery phase should we explore? Um, and, and is that really what that looks like? Because like, you've got the strategy, you've got the questions that need to be solved, or the problems that need to be solved, and then you spread them on the teams. Okay. And then they're all working on the same problems. And so it means, does that mean that a lot of it goes to the garbage? I mean, how do, you know, like, do you have a bunch of solutions that you're testing? And then how does that work? All right. Well, first thing I should correct, you were saying they're all working on the same problems. That would More be less, rare. Like, oh, okay. No, normally not. Okay. Uh, normally, okay, let's say you do a product strategy and there are 20 problems that we need to solve. And you've got 20 teams, so maybe you assign one to problem. Or, uh, there are cases where you do intentionally sign the same problem to multiple teams. That might be because you either want them to work together in a collaborative sense, or because you want them to use their own technologies and their own skills to come up with different solutions to the same problem. Not in a competitive sense, but in a sense because you're hoping in an ideal world, they both have a good impact. But more realistically, maybe one of the two actually pans out. So that's, that's what's going on. So there's some number of problems we need solved. And the teams are working on those problems. Now, when they're working on those problems, they have lots of ideas. And frankly, uh, 
Some of the ideas are just variations of the same idea, right? It's like just variations on a theme. And other times it's whole different approach. There's a technique that I really like, and I have been encouraging people to adopt this into discovery sprints, by the way. The technique comes from somebody named Teresa Torres, who you may know. I was on a panel with her. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. Teresa, Teresa, uh, Teresa created a technique because one of the problems that we've all seen and she, she did something about was a lot of times. So you give a team a problem to solve. The team just wants to jump into prototyping tomorrow. They want to say, okay, I got an idea. Let's prototype it. Let's see if it works. And her argument is take a breath, take a breath. Doesn't take long, but before you jump into prototyping, let's consider the different ways you might attack this problem. And that's called an opportunity solution tree. When you consider the different ways you might go, it only takes, it actually only takes a few hours to do this. And then you can get going on your prototyping. But the idea is if one approach doesn't work, you've got other ones ready to go. So it's a nice technique. It fits very well into a design sprint or at least if it's for an empowered team, a discovery sprint. And yes, Teresa just published a book. It just came out called Continuous Discovery Habits. Uh, I thought it was very good. And I have been encouraging people to to, uh, read it. When we talk about habits, I just uh, read here a question about culture. So uh, what about habits and culture in product teams? What... What is your take on that? How important is it for teams? Well, I mean, there's habits, well, the skills, and then there's the culture. I think those are the two things you're really talking about. Uh, the skills, in my experience, are not hard to learn. Uh, you know, you can learn the skills. They're they're straightforward. I've never really met anybody that couldn't learn the skills if they have an open mind and willing to do a little homework. It's not hard. The harder part is usually the mindset, uh, the culture. So, for example, one of the things we really fight and, and have to unlearn, we have to coach people to unlearn, is thinking uh, the way it was first explained to me is you have to know what you can't know. There are so many people that believe, unfortunately, what I'm about to say is mostly true with men, but they they believe <laughs> that they must be right. And of course, they, you know, they're just sure they're right. And one of the prerequisites to becoming a good product person is to know that you're probably wrong. Because mm-hmm. if you have that mindset that you're probably wrong, you're like, well, then what's the fastest way I can figure out if this is one of the good ideas or one of the bad ideas? If you don't have that mindset, it leads to all kinds of bad behaviors. It, it leads to delaying the time before you actually put your idea in front of real customers. It leads to ignoring the data that comes once you do put your idea in front of customers. So it's very important to have this mindset that, look, most ideas don't work. And that's just the reality. Literally on the order of 80 to 90% of product ideas don't work. The most common reason they don't work is because our customers are not as excited about them as we were. Sometimes they don't work because it's so complicated. They don't want to watch a YouTube video just to figure out how to work your product. And a lot of times they don't work because it would be so complicated to build. Nobody has the time for that. So most ideas don't work. 
And so what we want to do is figure that out in a few hours, not in months. But really to figure it out, it has to be shipped and used by the users. No, I mean, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's one of the most important things. That's why there's a difference between discovery and delivery. And this is important because if you think you have to ship something in order to test something, you are dooming your team to being incredibly slow. And by the way, if you believe that, you would never do a discovery sprint or a design sprint. Design no, sprint is predicated on not doing that. No, right? that's true. And, and I've been doing design sprints for years and that's why. But but still, there's something about that, like real the real validation well, sure. You, can, you know, so but what, I, what, what, what's really going on? I wish I could on? say like that the five days and the testing will get you real validation. But yeah. until, they, until they press purchase, you know, or they, you know, whatever. Well, let's, you know, so. let's talk about that. Because okay. like I said, product is all about risk, right? You have these four risks. So the first thing we do in product is we consider what are the four the four risks: value, usability, feasibility, viability. Because not everything is equally risky; everything has a different profile. And then once we decide, well, the real risk here is value; the real risk is feasibility. Then the question becomes, well, how serious is this risk? Normally, when we talk about risk, we talk about consequence. If we screw it up, how big a deal is that? If that's a big deal, we're going to take it very seriously and we're going to have a very high bar for confidence that might even require statistical significance. In other words, proof before we make a decision. Most of the time, though, it's not that severe. And we're like, you know, we just need a level of evidence that gives us some confidence that this is going to be used. So we talk about consequence, we talk about level of evidence, and then we use the right prototyping technique and the right testing technique. And that includes whether it's qualitative or quantitative. But let me just say, I've been doing this as long as anybody. I have never found a situation where you actually have to build the product and ship it. We can always do on the order of an order of magnitude less mm-hmm. so than, than ship it. So I, this is very important. That's fundamentally the, the difference between discovery and delivery. In waterfall, what was wrong? I mean, there's a lot of things that were horrible about the waterfall world, but the defining characteristic was what Ari was just saying you really didn't know until you shipped, mm. which means the way people in the process world talk about that is all the risk is at the end. You don't know anything really until you ship it. Discovery is the opposite of that. The discovery says don't write a line of code until you've already addressed these risks. Already. So number one, you are tackling the risks up front, not the end. Another signature of waterfall is the old world where some product manager type would define requirements, usually by gathering them from stakeholders, and then document those somewhere. They used to be called PRDs or or long user stories. And then they would hand those over to uh, designers and say, give me a design that meets those requirements. And then they would take the whole mess to the engineers at sprint planning and say, build this. Mm-hmm. That's literally waterfall. Mm-hmm. Even though I just described agile, that's waterfall, not agile. Uh, on the other hand, in a good product team in discovery, it is the product manager, designer, and engineer that are iterating on every one of these iterations. Every one. So it, you don't have 
you know, you would never go without showing your engineer the prototype because they're the ones that can tell you, can they build it? And number two, is there a better way to do this? So that's the second thing is, is this idea of iteration, uh, solving problems collaboratively. And then the final point that difference between waterfall and how good teams work is in waterfall, it's all output. There's no way to sign up for anything other than output in that model. And uh, in an empowered team, they're held accountable to outcomes. So they have to iterate. That's why we iterate so much is to achieve an outcome. And we don't actually build until we believe we have evidence we can achieve an outcome. So that's why discovery and delivery is so fundamentally different than the old waterfall. It's also why you can see a lot of teams embraced Agile, but they didn't really let go of waterfall. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think also we, there are um, many different ways how to experiment and how to test. So you can also test maybe without, uh, or let's say with a bit more of engagement uh, from the user side uh, when we talk about prototyping or that they need to maybe make a reservation or uh, give a little bit of money um, where you, that creates more evidence. And uh, I, I see that here also in the um, in the chat a lot of people uh, uh, coming up with other uh, ideas about uh, shipping um, to a small amount of users. I think there are many different ways, but I just guess that uh, this also creates more evidence in the discovery phase before you ship it. And yeah, uh, interesting, interesting to, to see that all. Yeah, so you don't, I don't think you mentioned that a lot in your book, like the prototyping, like as a format, do you? I don't remember well, that. Pre prototyping is just, those are user prototypes. Nobody uses that <laughs> term except for the guy that wrote that book. Uh, so nobody uses that. Okay. So yeah, there, the are idea, four kinds, there are four <laughs> kinds of prototypes okay. and that's just one of the types. It's great. But that is, you know, early Google, before he even joined, used to refer to this as fake it before you make it. And that's what right. we're talking about. It's, mm -hmm. there's no, this is not a magical new thing. This Maybe is I'm constant. not using the right word. What I mean was the type of prototype where you actually like, um, don't do a high fidelity prototype where people give you feedback, but you actually like make people create an action, like add a button to like a new feature and see if people actually click on it or something like it's. More well, that's like called that. a, that's another technique called a fake door test. There's, there's so okay. many good yeah. techniques. Okay. You know, if you read the book inspired, you know, there's like over a hundred techniques talked about in there. There's so many for all of these things we're talking about. And those aren't even all the techniques that I know about. Those are just the ones I think that every good team should know about. Okay. Yeah. You know, it depends on whether we're testing demand. It depends on whether we're testing the solution. It depends on whether we're testing quantitatively or qualitatively. It depends on what the risk is. Yeah, there's a okay. lot to product. And if you're a product manager today and you're listening to Marty Kagan and you're like, oh, my God, like I want to be working in a place like this. Um, what, what tips do you have for them to like? go in there, talk to their bosses, like have them, what, where do they start? Because it's really hard, you know, it's hard to like influence. A lot of times the great ideas and the inspiration comes from the um, lower end product managers. And they're really excited about doing like um, these kind of discovery things and, and, and being more empowered and thinking more in a problem solving 
kind of context and not a feature creation. Like, and they're like really excited. And then they go to their bosses and then they're like, well, my boss said he, he tried everything. And like, it's just another thing or, you know what I mean? Like, we don't want to like, this is, things aren't going to change here. You know, like this is the way it is. Um, so aside from like telling them switch companies, is there anything else they can do? Like, is there anything? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I've been really happy to see how many people have told me they bought a copy of empowered for their boss <laughs> yeah. um, because that, that's of course a, uh, a great, outcome. Uh, and honestly, a lot of those bosses have reached out saying, you know, I'm doing a call tomorrow with the CEO of uh, one of the big scale-ups right now in the UK. And it was that case exactly. One of one of his employees uh, told him about this book. He read it reluctantly, he said, read it. And then it's <laughs> like, oh my God, we should be doing this. And he's the one driving the transformation now. So yeah, I mean, I would. I always recommend trying to get your current company to uh, evolve. Now, getting the getting your leaders to give you a chance is usually the easier part because you can usually say, "Look, I realize we're not working the way Stripe is working, or we're not working the way Amazon's working. Why don't we try this?" Most executives are willing to try it, but I will tell you the the weak spot is usually not that. It's that the product manager needs to really step it up. In other words, if they've never been a product manager of a, of a real product team, they've only been doing that project management we've been talking about, they have a big job to learn. And this takes some real work. Uh, and normally you have the benefit of a coach, so your boss coaching you, but these people usually don't. So, um, that's, that's where it takes some real work. The good news is I've seen many people who have done that. They put in those efforts. They've attended talks. They've gone to training. They've done whatever so that they could show their boss what it could look like. And really, the key there is the product manager. The, it's rare that the designer and engineers are the problem. It's usually the product manager. If the product manager is willing to step up and is willing to do the homework, which really boils down to three big things. Really learning about your customers. I remember the guy who coached me, I was an engineer and then an engineering manager before I learned product. And the guy who coached me on product, uh, and I was doing products for other developers. So I thought I already knew the customers. And he told me that's never true. Uh, and so he wouldn't let me make a single decision until after I visited 30 customers. These were enterprises, 30 enterprises, 15 in the U.S., 15 in Europe. And it totally changed my outlook. It totally changed everything, my course of my career. But he was right. I needed to get out there and learn about customers. I also didn't know anything about I was just an engineer. So I knew about the technology side, but I didn't know go to market. I didn't know about the sales process. I didn't know about the financials. I didn't know about any of those dimensions of the business. And I had to learn. Now, it took me three months to learn these different skills. And I had a lot of gaps, but it was only three months. And I remember he told me, look, I'm not going to spend my time coaching you on this unless you're willing to put in the effort. But he said, if you're willing to put in the effort, I have no doubt you can learn this stuff. And I said, I am absolutely willing to put in the effort. I want to learn this stuff. I thought I knew it was I knew there was more to products than just the engineering. So I wanted to learn it. And uh, and I'm glad I did. And frankly, 
there's no reason really almost anybody can do this if they're willing to put in the effort. But I had to read books. I had to go, I had to take some course stuff, especially in finance. I had to get tutoring from somebody in the the control the finance organization. Uh, I had to learn. I went from nothing to learning about marketing and product marketing and the sales process. And, you know, you have to learn that stuff. So that's the second big thing. Learn your business. The first was learn your customers. And the third is you need to immerse in the data. You need to become the expert on the data about your product. And um, that uh, that's, you know, it takes about an hour a day, actually, spending time with the data. But if you do those three things, you can sh- so you can really blow away your CEO, show them. And I, in my experience, they love seeing this. If somebody shows they know this stuff, this is amazing. Just How about one- coaching? How about coaching? You mentioned coaching. Do you think that's a useful thing for young product managers if they don't have one in the company? So seek for for additional coaching? Yeah, I think everybody should have a coach. I really do. Now, I was taught that this is the primary job of your manager. And so I was taught that. And I will tell you, I my first job was at HP Labs. I worked there for 10 years. Uh, and every day of those 10 years, I had at least one manager coach responsible for coaching me. Sometimes I had two because I was learning, trying to learn something that my manager didn't know. So, um, I thought that was normal. Now I know it's not <laughs> normal. Uh, but so a couple things. First of all, I, I was actually, I wrote the forward to Teresa's book. And in the forward, I said, one of the reasons I'm excited about this book is if you haven't had coaching, this is like a good substitute. Uh, and then there's, uh, for those of you in Germany, uh, there's another book that came out called Strong by Petra Willi. Petra is a uh, longtime product leader. Um, I've known her for years. Uh, she was at one of the companies I advised, an obvious high potential person. And she uh, not only wrote a book, but she also does coaching. And I have introduced her to I don't know how many companies in Germany and in the Nordic countries. So uh, she's another good person. And, you know, for those of you in other places around the world, there are people that do coaching in Brazil and, of course, in the U.S. and Canada and India and China. There, there's people that coach on product all over now. There's not as many as there should be. Because frankly, the main thing you want to do when you decide who should coach you is see if they really know how to do product from a good product company. If they don't, you know, it's don't expect them to be able to help you become good. I, th- I think we're, oh, you know, our time is up. And uh, but I just have one more one thing, which is with the with the getting to know your customers, your first point, like really know your customers and talk to your customers. I feel that that's true for the engineers as well and for the designers as well. I feel like when I go into these and do discovery with these teams, like I feel like it's a shame that um, that the engineers aren't also talking to the customers or at least seeing recordings of these, you know, uh, conversations because they to be fully like uh, to fully empathize with who you're designing for, or who you're creating or programming things for or whatever. I feel like, what do you think about that? Is it just? Sure. No, no, <laughs> I've written a bunch about this. I feel very strongly about it. So let's separate 
when we talk about a product manager coming up to speed on their product, it's that can be the product manager go off and do a bunch of customer interviews. That's fine. That's not product discovery. When you're doing product discovery, it is always the product manager, always the product designer right there with you. And then we like to include one of the engineers on every visit. And that is, you know, I tell people the magic happens when the engineer is there for all the reasons you're getting at, but, and, and it's not enough to watch the recordings that rarely causes the result. You really want them to be right there, able to ask questions and basically able to see the pain. So this is super exposed, super yes, to understand their complexities. It's really it's wonderful. Humble upon the truth. Anyway, um, okay, we're not going to take more of your time, even though we could for five hours if we wanted, if yes. we had time. Um, I really recommend everyone buying those two books. It's amazing. Those two inspired and empowered. And um, I'm actually looking forward to your partner's book, uh, which seems really exciting too. And also you can go to Marty's website, which is um, Silicon Valley Product Group, SVPG. And there's all of his amazing writings and inspiring writings and in your blog, which I read all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, anything else that you want to add to this? Well, I hope it was useful. Uh, and yeah, I, I appreciate everybody's time and um, I wish everybody the best of luck. Well, hopefully you guys found that interesting. And if you like what you heard, show us some love by giving us a really high rating on Spotify, iTunes, or just mention a stuff, friend. Also, we'd love to hear about your product challenges. So drop us a line at www.red-id.com. And we promise we'll answer all of your questions. Bye-bye.